picking it up in chapter 3 tonight. As we look, there's several things that we're going to see. And just from some of the stories that we're going to be highlighting as we go through the book, it could be, uh, it could be the headlines in any newspaper in the United States. Uh, family feud leaves 69 brothers dead. Or a powerful government leader caught in a love nest. A gang rape leads to a victim's death and dismemberment. Girls at a party kidnapped and forced to marry strangers. Woman judge says it's no longer safe to travel the highways of the country. Well, how's that different than Times News? How's it different from the crazy things we see on the news if you watch the news uh, at night, the evening news at night? We're dealing with the same things because we're still dealing with the same problem. The number one problem with man is sin. And God is the only cure for that problem. Man can try to better himself. Man can try to do all the things he thinks he ought to do. But in the end, he will still, no matter what man he is, have to figure out how to overcome the sin cycle. And we see the sin cycle as we go through Judges like you see it in no other place. You see the sin cycle like this. First, we see the the children of Israel, they're in a place of rest. And that time of rest leads to rebellion against the Lord. That rebellion against the Lord leads to retribution. God brings chastisement upon His people. In that chastisement, His people repent or cry out on the name of the Lord. That repentance uh, is going to lead the Lord to move. And as he moves, he's going he's to begin the, the work of calling forth that hero. The heroes that we talked about before, as the, the book of Judges lays out for us. And so as they, as they then lay out for that, they're going to see restoration. And that restoration is going to lead them back to rest, which is going to lead them back to rebellion, which is going to lead them back to retribution, which is going to lead them back to repentance, which is going to lead them back to restoration, which will lead them back to rest. You get the idea, right? For 400 years, through the book of Judges, and actually, if you want to, if you want to take a careful study of the history of the nation of Israel, they never step out of that cycle. There may be longer gaps, but they're constantly in this cycle because at the, at the base... Men always resist what God wants to do in their life. They resist the Holy Spirit. Remember when Stephen was bringing a charge against the Sanhedrin, the very Sanhedrin that crucified Christ, they're getting ready to kill Stephen. What did Stephen say? You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, you do also. And that's the same thing we see looking way back in the time of the judges. And we want to be careful as we go through the book of Judges and as we study it, we can disassociate ourselves and begin to wonder, what's wrong with these people? And the reality is they're just like us. We do the same things. Now, we don't have to. We don't have to live the life of that cycle. We, we can follow the example of Joshua, who the Bible says, follow the Lord with his whole heart. And there was nothing special about Joshua other than, you know, he made a, a choice to follow God. 
And he followed the Lord with everything that was in him. He followed the Lord. And Scripture lays that out for us. So it's possible to make that choice. But then you have other guys like Achan who, who couldn't make it very long at all before he was pulled away and enticed by his own desires. And his own desires led him to sin and sin ultimately brought him to death. And it didn't only destroy him. It destroyed his whole family. Everybody that was watching. So as we go through the book of, of Judges, hopefully it's going to help us in some way begin to recognize that cycle begin to take a look and see if we're on that cycle if we do that if if when we find our our place of rest do we immediately turn our back or forsake the lord or are we are we pressing into the idols are we shedding innocent blood i mean that was the crime that god brought against the nation of israel through the prophet jeremiah he said, these are the three things you did. You forsake me and you t- turn your back to the Lord. You've brought in other gods. That's anything that you add to your life that comes between you and the Lord. They had names for their gods, right? Baal, Ashtoreth, Astart, all these names of the gods they served, but they were the same thing. They were still money, sex, power, comfort, self, same stuff. We just call them by different names. They set up idols, and then they shed innocent blood. And so for those three things, God said, I'm going to bring my judgment upon the nation of Israel. And he brought it. So as we go through and as we consider this time of the judges, we ought to really consider ourselves. Ourselves, because as believers, as those who have given their life to the Lord, we find ourselves living in a lost world. But in that, we have a job to do. Jesus said, you're here to be salt and light. So we're to be fulfilling that responsibility. We're to be being what, uh, what God is calling us to be. Salt, preservative, that which stops corruption, and light that drives away the darkness. We can't handle everything, but we can take care of that area of responsibility that the Lord has gifted us with. And so as we look, it begins in... Chapter 3, verse 1 of laying out. Now, these are the nations which the Lord left, that he might test Israel by them. That is all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. Now, we saw last time the Lord said, because you're not faithful, because you don't believe that I'll send the enemies out from before you, then I'm going to leave them around you. And they're going to be a test. Now, when we look at the testing of the Lord, I think it's vitally important that we understand that the testing of the Lord is for us, not Him. God already knows our condition. He doesn't need to see the culmination of the test to figure out whether we're okay or not. We need to see it. We need to understand as we go through the test, where am I really? So that we don't deceive ourselves. So that we don't begin to think, hey, I'm okay or I... I've got it all handled. I got it all worked out. You know, we can begin to tell ourselves everything's okay. But then when the Lord brings that test, it shows us where we're weak. It shows us where we need help. It shows us areas of our life that need attention. All the years I had coaching football, I can tell you, uh, you learn more from a defeat than you learn from a victory. Victory doesn't teach you anything. Defeat, that teaches you 
a lot. Shows you your weakness. And so that's what the Lord allows that time of testing. And that testing is that they might be proved, that they might understand what's going on in our life. How, how did we get to this place? Why are we experiencing, or why aren't we experiencing all that God has for us? Why do we find ourselves here in this pit? And so he brings the testing that all who had not known. And in verse 1 begins to lay out for us part of the concept of why they found themselves this way. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Moses told the children of Israel to train up their children. Where they went, where they walked, what they did. That they were to, to, to teach them about Almighty God, that they were to teach them about God's laws, that they were to teach them to be thankful for what God had provided, that they were to teach them to separate themselves from the world and to worship God only. This is the things that they were to teach. And they were not supposed to have like a classroom, sit down and teach. The Lord said, you teach them when you sit down, when you rise up, when you're out playing, when you're on a walk, whatever's going on, look for those opportunities to teach. But here in in verse 1 of chapter 3, as we look at the book of Judges, he says, all those who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. He doesn't say all those who did not experience. That's not the word he's using. It's all those who don't know what God did. Why don't they know what God did? Why don't they know about the battles that that God won? Why don't they know about the victories that Joshua had? The Lord laid out in the book of Deuteronomy that every year at the Feast of Tabernacles, they were to read the entire book of Deuteronomy before the people. If they did that, they'd know some of the things that God had done, some of the victories that they'd had, but they they weren't even doing that. They weren't taking what God had given them and walking in obedience in it. And so as a result, a generation would come up, maybe mom and dad are okay. Maybe mom and dad know. Mom and dad had a good relationship, but they didn't teach our kids. And so that generation comes up and they're like, what's the big deal? Don't we see some of those same things in our world today? A generation, a generation after generation after generation that, that comes up and, and, and needs to, in some way, experience those things themselves because perhaps it hasn't been taught, it hasn't been brought. And with this test, we talked about on Sunday morning, right? They've got two choices. They can allow that test to to bring about triumph, and we'll see that in the heroes, the judges. Or they can allow the test to bring about a stumbling and falling in temptation. And so the Lord brings the test. In verse 2, he says, This was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. So the Lord says, man, i got to do something because nobody's teaching the kids. The kids don't understand, so they're going to experience it. They're going to experience war. Now, you and I, when we read that, we think, oh, war, you know, fighting. Do you ever pay attention to the wars God wages? Because they don't go that way. Sometimes the Lord sends you out with a vase and a torch. With 300 other soldiers, and that's it. That's your only weapon that they might know how to war. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds. 
the weapons of our warfare, the Lord's saying, you guys need to, the kids need to learn, the people need to understand that victory is already assured. Is it any different for you and I? I mean, when we look at the different things that we struggle with, Jesus Christ has already won the victory. There's, nothing, there's not something else for him to win. It's won. But sometimes we can live our life not living in the victory, but because of some of these same issues, unbelief, disobedience, whatever it might be to, to what the word lays out, we find ourselves in a place where we're not experiencing the victory that Jesus Christ won. And we're being held down in bondage by an enemy that really has no power or right over us. But what we give him. Jesus already beat him. That part's done. In him, we have the victory. In him, we have forgiveness of sins. In him, we have redemption. In him, we have all those things. So when we look at it, we, un- we need to just kind of wrap our hands around that concept. The, the battle's won. The, 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 the struggles I face in life are struggles that James tells me I'm going to face. Why are they struggles for me? Because I have a desire for whatever. And my desires pull me away. But whose desires are they again? Oh, that's right. They're mine. They're mine. They pull me. And any time I feel my desires pull me, wanting to lead me down that path that leads to sin and rebellion and forsaking the Lord ultimately maybe somewhere down the road, I think of Cain. You guys remember Cain, right? Cain and Abel each brought a sacrifice to the Lord. Abel's sacrifice was received, was accepted. Cain's sacrifice was unaccepted. And Cain went away upset, visibly upset. In fact, the Lord could tell that his countenance had fallen, that he was angry. And so the Lord came to Cain and he said to him, Cain, sin is at the door of your heart right now, but you should rule over it. That means, Cain, you don't have to kill your brother means, Cain, you have a choice. means, Cain, you don't have to give in to that desire that's within you. But we know how the story goes. That desire brought sin. The sin brought death. And ultimately, the death of Abel. So as we look, as we study, when it says they need to learn how to make war, we need to realize that God's got a whole other way of making war. A whole other way about doing battle. A whole other way about being focused in and, and, and checking out the things that, that God wants to show us. And so they need to, to learn. They have to be taught God's way. God's way to find the victory. The victory that's already won. They just have to walk in it. They have to walk by faith. And so he goes on in verse 3. He says, so namely the five lords of the Philistines... And all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, those are the Phoenicians, if you are a history buff, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, from Mount Baal Hermon to the entrance of Hamath. And they were left that he might test Israel by them, to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord 
which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. Again, God already knows. It's so that we would know, so that we could see, that we would recognize the weakness that we have. For the Lord already knows those things. In verse 5 he says, Thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. In verse 6, And they took their daughters to be their wives, and gave their daughters to their sons, and they served their gods. Proverbs 4.23 says, well, actually, let's go there. Why don't you turn with me to Proverbs chapter 4.23. I think it's an important thing for us to, to uh, grab a hold of. says keep your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life keep your heart with all diligence paul would say it like this do not be unequally yoked together with unbeliever for what fellowship has light with darkness when we look at judges chapter 3 and we begin to see the initial rebellion that initial rebellion is The idea that they are, in essence, romanced away from a relationship with the Lord. Because they fall in love with this man or this woman, they give their heart away. But they give their heart away to someone they're not supposed to give their heart away to. So the Lord lays out for us in Proverbs, guard your heart. For out of it flows all the issues of life. Guard it. Don't just... Give your heart away. Think about what does the word say? What fellowship do I have with this person? Why am I even going to begin? Why do I even want to start down that road at all? I mean, I don't even know how many hundreds of times a man or woman has come to me in a relationship with an unbeliever and, and struggling and, you know, they thought they were going to change. But in the reality, what occurs typically is they change. And those things that were so important to them get set back on the wayside. And so for the children of Israel, they begin to marry into these other Canaanite cultures. And what happens? Their hearts turn away from the Lord and they begin to worship other gods. They begin to experience all of those things. And so that first step we see beginning, being unequally yoked, forsaking God, And worshiping other gods. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God. And they served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. So they turn away and they follow these other gods. The Baals and the Ashtoreths. And so as they head down this. We see the first step in the sin cycle. Rebellion. And then in verse 8. Therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. And he sold them into the hand of Cushan. Rashathiam, king of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cushan Rishathiam eight years. Now, Cushan Rishathiam, his name meant double darkness. The Cushan double darkness. I, I'm sure he didn't give that name to himself. 
I'm sure the people he conquered, the people he ruled over, gave that name to him. So we see rebellion. We see the Lord in that rebellion bringing that chastisement from God, that the retribution, because whatsoever a man sows, that will he also reap. So they're, bear, they're, they're bearing the fruit of the harvest that they've sown. And in that retribution, in that judgment, in that chastisement that comes upon them, they find themselves in double darkness for eight years. And then the Bible says, then they cried out. How long is it going to take you to cry out? Man, don't waste time in the darkness trying to... Eight years. Eight years in this state. Not, you know, things moderately changed. I mean, they end up in bondage to this evil ruler for eight years. And at the, at, as eight years, the culmination of those eight years come, the scripture lays out for us, then the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. So we see the third stage, that movement of repentance. Now, it's important that we realize, as we, especially as we go through the book of Judges, it's going to say over and over and over again, they cried out to the Lord. The scripture doesn't say they repented. Obviously, they're going to go straight back to the same cycles. We'll see that as we look at the first judge, which is Othniel. And as we look at that, we're going to, hopefully we're going to grasp that idea. You know, we can be sorry for our circumstances, and we can call upon the name of the Lord when things are rough, but if we don't change what we're about... Like a dog goes back to his vomit, we're going to end up in the same old place again. That same darkness, that same pit, getting lost on the same street, doing the same dumb things all the time. I often tell people, if, if you want your life to be different next year, you're going to have to do something that you have never done before now. Because people are creatures of habit. We walk in our ruts. And you stay in that same old rut. And nothing changes. And we complain and we argue and we get frustrated about the fact that nothing changes. But we don't do anything different. We stay in that same old rut. We stay in that same old place. So we want to experience more of God. Then we've got to follow the Lord with our whole heart. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, if you don't love me more than mother or father, you're not worthy of me. So that the idea is that he's our driving force. And we say so often uh, believers aren't experiencing that abundant life. They're not experiencing the thing that Jesus said, I came to give you life and life more abundantly. And people get frustrated and sometimes people ultimately walk away, but... But in the reality, they never really gave themselves in the first place. They put their faith or their trust in a, in a prayer, but not in the person that they were praying to. They put their, their faith in something, but they're not putting their faith and trust in someone. And honestly, letting him be king. Letting him be the ruler. I heard a story the other night about a guy who was talking about some of the strange things he's seen 
people give to the Lord. And this fellow used to work at a, at a place that they, they would take like 55-gallon drums and people would give, before the days of yard sales, they'd give their stuff to this guy. They'd fill this, these drums and they'd send it off to missionaries. So, you know, they'd send off their old shoes and their old clothes and the old things that they didn't want anymore. And they'd send all those things to the missionary. And, and sometimes that's our attitude in how we treat God. We give him our cast-offs, our, the things we, well, I got plenty of this or I got too much of that. So I'm going to give some of this to the Lord. He said, one day a box of, of tea, a, a woman brought in a box of tea. And she was in the practice, usually, of using a tea bag for several different bowls of tea. She'd make herself a bowl of tea. So she came and she told him, now, I made this sacrifice. Instead of making several bowls of tea, I just would make one. And then I'd clean out that tea bag and fold it up, and it's right back here in the box. So now we can send that off to the missionaries, and they can make more tea out of my used tea bags. In the book of Malachi, the Lord says, why don't you try giving that to your governor? See how that works. Now, maybe some of us would like to give that to President Obama. Maybe we'd like to call him, give him our used tea bags. But I don't think he's going to receive that gift. But sometimes that's the attitude we have in what we give to the Lord. In, in the way that we follow Him, in the way we obey Him. Here's this generation not really instructed in the ways of God, giving their hearts away to pagans. And it leads them down the, the road to bondage, to double darkness. So while they're here in the double darkness, they cry out to the Lord. And the Lord hears their cry. That's how merciful and faithful God is. He hears their cry. He don't have to do nothing. But he hears their cry, and the scripture says, And he answered them, the children of Israel, and he delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. Othniel. We've already been introduced to Othniel, and there is some confusion. There will always be some confusion in exact relationships when we look at the Bible. Because the same word for son and brother can be son-in-law and brother-in-law or it can be grandpa or it can be i mean there's a, a wide range of of ways that these words can be used when we met othniel you remember he caleb said whoever will go and take this city the city of debir where there were giants whoever will go take that city i'll give my daughter to wed and the scripture says it was his uncle's son or his nephew who goes out and delivers the land to him and so he gives his daughter to him. Now, Othniel is the son of Caleb. By marriage, he's married to, to Caleb's daughter. He's uh, Caleb's son-in-law. And it says that this is what the Lord did. Listen, they called upon his name. And so the Lord delivered them. Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The first thing we see about Othniel and that sets him apart from everybody else. One, Othniel is available. He's available for God to use. He's not unavailable. It doesn't mean he's not doing anything. It doesn't mean he's sitting at home waiting for a phone call. It just means that his heart is already toward the Lord, and he's available for, for God to reach out and God to touch him. The second thing we see is in the very next verse, in verse 10. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon him. 
So the second thing we see is he's empowered by God. He's empowered by God. I'm going to teach them how to make war. And so you have a man who's available, Othniel. We already know Othniel comes from good stock, right? Caleb was a brave, Caleb's brother was brave. The whole family was full of courage. They went and and took on the giants when nobody else wanted to take on that land. And Othniel took a special assignment on that. We already know he's brave. He's available, but more important than all those things, he's filled by the Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the one who is going to give the victory. He's going to give him that victory. The Spirit of the Lord came upon him. And he judged Israel, and he went out to war. And the Lord delivered Cushan Rishathiam, king of Mesopotamia, into his hands. He was empowered by the Holy Spirit to do what God asked him to do. First thing that the people needed to learn about warfare. Need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit. It's not about how big I am. It's not about how smart I am. It's not about how strategic I can be. Am I anointed by the Holy Spirit to do what God's calling me to do? And so Othniel shows that the power of the Holy Spirit enables him to prevail over Cushan Rishathiam. And in verse 11, we see the last part of the cycle. So the land had rest for 40 years. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. So we saw rebellion, retribution, repentance, restoration, and rest. Look at the next verse. And the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So Othniel's gone. The first judge, Othniel dies, and the whole thing starts over again. And the children of Israel go right back into their rebellion. They go right back into to the, the evil that men can do. And one of the things that we see in that is, is uh, again, that continued breakdown of the family. The family unit breaking down, we see it, it changing our society, we see it changing theirs. So what happens? It says, The Lord strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel, because they had done evil in the sight of the Lord. Rebellion and retribution. The Lord brings his judgment. The chastisement comes. He strengthens Eglon. Who is it that sets up kings? God. Isn't that the lesson he taught Nebuchadnezzar? Nebuchadnezzar, this is a kingdom I gave you. You, If I didn't give it to you, you wouldn't have it. Same thing with Eglon. Eglon, his, his name means, it's kind of funny, his name means young bull. Eglon, young bull. We're going to see he is a man of large stature. Or the Bible calls him fat. So he's a fat young bull. Fat young bull. Well, let's take a look at what, what's going to happen. So he strengthens Eglon, the king of Moab, and he gathers to himself the people of Ammon and Amalek and went and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. Hopefully you remember from last time, the city of Palms is Jericho. Jericho. They don't rebuild the city, but that's where he sets his base camp and, and he runs things from this the, the, the city of Palms or the area of Jericho. Now it's interesting who we see here. The Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Amalekites. 
Well, what's the big deal? We're going to see them over and over and over again, right? So Moab and Ammon came from Lot. And the Amalekites came from Esau. You heard those names before? So we have examples of men who were a part of families whose brothers were called to the Lord, but who really didn't always, certainly in the case of Lot, seek the Lord in his decisions. That's how Lot found himself in Sodom and Gomorrah, right? And when he left Sodom and Gomorrah, when the destruction of the Lord came, he hid in a cave, his daughters got him drunk, and he got him pregnant. And one of them gave birth to Moab, and the other gave birth to Ammon. The Moabites and the Ammonites came from Lot. It's something that came out of his life that's a part of the consequences to failure in his own faith. Esau, we know, he he didn't really care about the things of the Lord at all anyway. Esau was about, what can I get? Esau would have been the perfect American. God helps those who help themselves. And I'm going to go help myself. I'm not going to bother the Lord. I can do it all myself. I'm going to pull myself up by my bootstraps. And they become the Amalekites. And the Amalekites, part of Esau's family, become the Amalekites. And the Amalekites are a, a, a traditional enemy of the people of the Lord. Those who think they can do it all themselves. It's not any different today. We don't call them Amalekites. We just find ourselves or people we know putting their faith in their own abilities rather than putting their faith in the Lord. It's the only thing that really separated them coming from the same family. Well, Eglon has all these guys. They've got the victory over the children of Israel. So the children of Israel served Eglon, king of Moab. How long? 18 years. How long is it going to take you to cry out to the Lord? Sometimes it takes longer than others, don't it? Some people, John's ready to call the Lord in two minutes. These guys are ready to call the Lord in 18 years. But see, the Lord brought this to test them. And it took 18 years for them to understand they needed a Savior. They needed a Deliverer. They needed someone to set them free. Set them free from this young bull. So in verse 15, But when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for them. Ehud, son of Gera, the Benjamite, a left-handed man. Isn't it interesting that the Bible would bring that up? Left-handed man. You think that the Lord would have put in there, I wired him wrong. <clears throat> left-handed. But really what the Hebrew says is it, it says that his right hand was stopped. So the interpretation is a left-handed man. How was his right hand stopped? How was his right hand shut up? A lot of people believe that Ichud was a, was a man who was lame in his right hand. At that time in history, if you weren't right-handed, they tie your left hand down and teach you to use your right hand. And that's how they did things. That was a big deal. It was a big deal, the, the strength of the right hand. That was the example that, 
that they would give. So, but they couldn't do that to Ehud because there's something wrong with his right hand. There's something wrong with his right arm. Did he have a withered hand? Did he, was, it, was it whatever it was, he becomes known as a guy who could only do things with his left hand. And probably a lot of people would look down on him for that very same reason. Because there's something wrong with him. Oh, he's, he's messed up. He's messed up. He's got, a, he's got a handicap. The handicap is that he's left-handed. By him, the children of Israel sent tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. So the next thing we, we see, we see the Lord showing us with Othniel that uh, we need to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to, to be a hero from, for God. And then we see in Ehud that we have to learn to trust the Lord even in our lack, in, our, in the areas where we're weak. Well, for example, Paul would go before the Lord in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and he'd say, Lord, there's, there's, there's all these, these things I want to do and all these things I used to be able to do, but, but now, because of all the revelation I've been given, I, I have this thorn in my flesh that hampers me. And, and, and so Paul said, I prayed three times that God would, would take that away. And the Lord said, no, my, my, my grace is sufficient for you. And then he gave him this clue. For my strength is made perfect where? In your weakness. 1 Corinthians chapter 1 tells us not many wise are called. But that the Lord uses what? The foolish things to confound the wise. The weak things to do what? Overthrow the mighty. So the Lord calls Ehud, a man with a shriveled up arm, only got one hand, as the deliverer of his people. And I, I think we'll talk more about it as we get further into some of the other judges. But I think that's a pattern of the Lord. When God called Gideon as a judge and 30,000 people came down to fight, God said, you got too many. Get rid of them. Tell everybody who is afraid and wants to go home, they can go home. Poof, they're gone. Just like that. Why? Because the Lord wants to use the weak things to overthrow the mighty so that he, his power is what's seen. A lot of times you'll go and maybe you want to go down and rent a movie of Samson. And what are they going to do? Who are they going to find to play Samson? Well, Samson's going to be some big old bodybuilder dude who can't hardly act. He's got all these big muscles. Really? Does that sound like God? So that people would come up to Samson and say, Man, dude, where do you work out? You're a pretty strong guy. They'd look at the muscles and say, Oh, he's so big. I think Samson's a scrawny little dude. And it didn't make no sense how he was whooping people. Because they'd look at him and go, how is it that Samson is doing this? He's not doing it. That was the point, right? That God uses the weak things to overthrow the mighty. The foolish to to disrupt the the knowledge of the wise. He, He uses these things so that people will understand that it is, back to the beginning, his empowerment that brings a victory. His empowerment that... That gives these things. So the Lord calls Ehud 
And Ehud is a, is a lame guy, lame in his right arm. And it says uh, he's to go give the tribute to Eglon. So he's about to have a meeting. Now Ehud made himself a dagger. It was double-edged and a cubit in length. So that's at least 18 inches. And he fastened it under his clothes on his right thigh. Now this is interesting because in those days... There were only certain places they would look for a weapon. And because most people were right-handed, or taught to be right-handed, they would strap their sword or dagger on their left thigh. So they would check that, but they, they wouldn't check the right thigh. So, so he's, it's actually going to enable him to get this dagger into a special meeting with Eglon because of the weakness that he has, that he's left-handed, that he, his right arm. He doesn't use his right arm. So... He brought the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. And the Bible never minces words. Now, Eglon was a very fat man. Now, when he had finished presenting the tribute, he went away. And the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the stone images that were at Gilgal. Remember the stone images at Gilgal? Who set them up? Joshua did. Joshua put up the stone pillars to remind the children of Israel of the crossing. He got to the stone pillars, and then he goes, Oh, I need to go back. I, I got a special message from God for Eglon. So he goes back to talk to Eglon. And he himself turned back, and he said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And so the king said, Keep silent. And all who attended him went out from him. So Eglon, hearing that there was a special oracle from God, and let's face it, Kings then, like kings now, like to hear from God. They like to hear God tell them what a great job they're doing or, or some special oracle in those days and these. So, Eglon sends all the people out of his, his little room there. <coughs> he sends them away. And he says, all right, now, tell me, what is this? What is this secret message from God that you have? So, Ehud came to him. Now, he was sitting upstairs in his cool private chamber. Now, that is a nice, doesn't that sound nice? He's sitting in his cool private chamber. You want me to put that in English for you? He is probably in his bathroom. His cool private chamber. And he says, okay, well, while I'm here, tell me what it is that that God has to say to me. So, Ehud said, I have a message from God to you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached, and you see Ehud coming in close. I got to tell you this special message from the Lord. And he reached his left hand, took the dagger from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And even the hilt went in after the blade. And the fat closed over the blade, and he did not draw the dagger out of his belly, and his entrails came out. So, <coughs> Ehud, this, this deliverer, this judge, God leads him to a private assassin, assassination of Eglon, who was a fat, young bull. Seems like that kind of points to sacrifice, doesn't it? To kill the fatted calf. Well, the Lord leads him to, to kill the fatted calf, Eglon. And uh, I don't really want to discuss you, but just so you know, it doesn't really say entrails. It's way more graphic than that. 
But King James and New King James went easy on us and say, entrails, that's, that's enough, right? We get the idea it was bad. He's not going to come back from this. Well, then Ehud, how's he going to get away? Then Ehud went out through the porch and shut the doors of the upper room behind him and locked them. And when he had gone out, Eglon's servants came to look. And to their surprise, the doors of the upper room were locked. So they said, well, he's probably attending to his needs in the cool chamber. So he's probably still in the bathroom. It's all right. So they leave him be. They leave him be. And that's how Ehud gets away. So they waited till they were embarrassed and still he had not opened the doors of the upper rooms. Man, he's been in there a long time. What is he doing? I don't know. We better go in. So therefore, they took the key and opened them. And there was their master fallen dead on the floor. But Ehud had escaped while they delayed and passed <coughs> beyond the stone images and escaped to Syrah. And it happened when he arrived that he blew the trumpet in the mountains of Ephraim and the children of Israel went down with him from the mountains and he led them. And this is what he said in verse 28. Follow me for the Lord has delivered your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. Uh, By the way, has is past tense. That same concept that we fight from victory. Victory is already won. God just needs people who are willing to step out in faith and do what he's calling them to do. And Ehud couldn't do it himself. Any more than Othniel did it by himself. But men of God were moved by the Spirit of God, and they put out the call, and God's people answered and came. And they came around Ehud, this handicapped guy who probably would never be in leadership. And if you and I were looking around for some guy to pick as our leader, no one would have picked him. Because he's got a withered right arm, or he's left-handed, or he's, there's something wrong with him. He's not like everybody else. But God uses weak things. God uses the foolish things. And so he retains the victory. Well, they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. And at that time, they killed about 10,000 men of Moab, all stout men of valor, and not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest 80 years. That's the longest period of rest they're going to have in the book of Judges. Following the judge Ehud, who is famous for his assassination of a man in the bathroom. God uses the foolish things to confound the wise. And so God gives this great victory. Then we come to the third judge. There's so much information about this third judge, he is going to take up an entire verse all by himself. The third judge's name is Shamgar. After him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad, and he also delivered Israel. Well, he didn't even give us the rebellion, and he didn't give us the, the, all the different stages of, of this. He just lays out for us this judge. Anytime I think that God does that, you have these certain patterns, and all of a sudden something different, 
I think that the Lord is putting a flag around him and saying, hey, you might want to take a look. Take a little closer look at this fella. Now, as we study the book of Judges, you want to understand, these judges do not follow a chronology. They overlap each other. Some of them are in one area of Israel. Some of them are in another area of Israel, depending on where, what tribes they're with. Well, Shamgar, interestingly enough, that's not a Jewish name. He probably isn't Jewish at all. Shamgar is not Hebrew, but probably Canaanite. Well, that's interesting, isn't it? He's the son of Anath. Anath was a name of a Canaanite god, the god or goddess of war. So he's called the son of Anath, the son of the god of war from the Canaanites. His name was Shamgar. Sounds like a a movie or something that, that somebody should do. Shamgar. But what's... What's interesting about Shamgar is that he is someone that the Lord raised up from outside the nation of Israel to deliver the nation of Israel. Is that the only time that's ever happened? No. Won't be the last time. God brings Shamgar. And Shamgar has an interesting implement. He uses an ox goad. An ox goad of those days would look a lot like a digging bar. You guys all know what a digging bar looks like, right? Some people are more familiar than others with what a digging bar looks like. Well, for them, instead of being iron or or steel, it had been made out of wood. It would have had a fine point on one end. That was the end that you poked the ox with. It's about six to eight feet long. On the other end would be a spade, and that's the end you cleaned the plow with. Poke the ox, clean the plow. Poke the ox, clean the plow. So it tells us a lot about Shamgar. It tells us Shamgar is not from some royal house, that he's not from some rich or, or, rich or, or wealthy land, but that Shamgar somehow comes to a relationship with, uh, with uh, Almighty God and that he is a man of service who is busy out doing whatever it is that he's supposed to do, probably plowing with his ox. And one day, there's a, a group of Philistines that come around. We don't know how many. The, when the Bible says he killed 600, that could be 600 over his lifetime. That could be 600 over 10 years. It could be 600. Usually when it's 600 at once, the Bible says 600 at once. So probably it's, it's over his lifetime, over the time in which God used him. And here's humble Shamgar who's got his ox and he's out plowing. And here would come a group of Philistine soldiers and they wouldn't even pay any attention to Shamgar. But Shamgar was one of God's judges. And so he would be empowered by the Holy Spirit and he would use what was in his hand. Ox goad. And he would clean their plow. And he would defeat the enemies of the Lord. That's bad. You got you to take all the shots you can. He would defeat the enemies of the Lord. And, and as he went through his life, delivered the people. And God remembered him. God remembered him. After him, Shamgar, the son of Anath, used 
the ox goad and killed 600 men of the Philistines, he also delivered Israel. So from these three, I want you to just kind of, as far as we'll go tonight, but just as you think about it, from the three, you have one guy who's got all the stock. He comes from Caleb's family. Nobody would have a hard time following Othniel. Natural born leader. Then you got Ichud, who's a, a guy with a shriveled up arm. And then you got Shamgar, he's not even an Israelite. Walking around with an ox goad and an ox and a plow. Yet the Lord used all three. And it's important that we understand that the reason the Lord lays out for us this group of heroes as we begin with the first three judges when we're preparing to go on to Deborah next week, he's saying, I can use anybody. Because 1 Corinthians chapter 1 that we began with, we talked about, said not many wise. It doesn't say not any. It says not many strong. It doesn't say not any. The point being that God uses those which will give the glory where it belongs, with him. And so the Lord used Othniel, he used Ehud, he used Shamgar, he used three different guys from three different lifestyles in three different ways. One's an assassin, the other's a military-minded guy who goes out and leads an army, and the third guy's just a farmer walking around with a stick. But God used them all. The same way that God wants to use us in people's lives today. Because as far as I'm concerned, we're neck deep in the book of Judges. And God's always looking for that next person, that one to to whom he can call up, that that through whom a a move of the Spirit can happen, a revival can be poured out, a a town changed, a community changed, people's lives changed by someone like Shamgar who will just stand up and say, well, I don't got much, but I got to stick. Or Ehud, who's got a shriveled arm, but he's willing to give himself and answer the call of the Lord. Or Othniel, brave soldier, ready to fight. If we'll answer the call, the point is, he is strong enough to assure for you and I the victory. Amen? Why don't you stand with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord God, we thank you for this time. And we come before you, Lord, we ask that... God, you would just help us to have eyes to see, help us to have ears to hear, help us to learn the lessons that you lay out for us in the book of Judges, that we would understand, Lord, that there's still things you want to do, and that the people, people around us, the people are struggling in, in various places of rebellion or restoration, or maybe even in rest, but In all those things, God, you have called us more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. Because you have won the victory and you equip us to be more than we are. To do more than we can do. As long as that attitude in our heart is that it's for your glory, not mine. That it's for your majesty, 
not mine, that it's for your kingdom, not my kingdom, because you are the king. And I'm just here to be a tool in the master's hand to be used as you would see fit. So God, amongst your people in this place, move. There are heroes here just as they were heroes in Israel. Ordinary men and women that did extraordinary things by the power of God because they were empowered by the Holy Spirit. They trusted you and they used what you put in their hand. Lord, I pray you would use us to bring about the victory that you've already won that we might experience that victory here in our community as you pour out your spirit in a new and mighty way. We give you all the thanks and the glory for it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're going to close out tonight with a (coughs) word of worship. We invite you to hang out and worship with us. And then we're going to meet around out front. We don't got nothing out there, do we? I might be able to play that. Just give me a minute. (laughs) Um, But we'll hang out out there and have a neat time of fellowship. God bless you guys and go in peace.